Amen. Good morning. Before I begin, please uh, bow with me as I pray for God's blessing over this sermon. Heavenly Father, I come before you, and we come before you today as your children, in need of you, in need of your instruction in your word. Thank you so much for giving it to us, for preserving it through the many generations of saints that have gone before us. And thank you for the promises that are to come. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. And I ask that you will speak through me today. Give me strength and wisdom and give us all ears to hear your word and to be changed by it. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, believe it or not, uh, I did not pick the sermon topic for today. Uh, We will be talking about apologetics. And if you know me, it might come as a shock that I didn't get to pick the uh, the topic. Um, Mike suggested it. And at first I was like, well, what are you giving me a softball here? I didn't do a good job the first time, apparently. But no, uh, he thought it was necessary, so I... I said, sure. So we will be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But to begin with, I want to start with a story, uh, sort of a, a personal story of my own. Uh, you see, I did not grow up in the Reformed circle, sort of Reformed denominations. And uh, one of the things that attracted me first to when, when we were sort of church shopping uh, six or seven years ago with the other church plant was just how theologically um, sort of capable everyone was in the Reformed denomination. And coming from a AG background, where so AG is Assembly of God. And if you don't know what that means, the Assembly of God comes out of the uh, Pentecostal movement. So they have a, a very heavy en- emphasis on the Holy Spirit, um, speaking in tongues, things like that. The churches we attended didn't necessarily go all the way in a, in a lot of those regards. But the the fact remains that, and you could ask my parents to verify this, that um, through going to church for my whole life, it wasn't until I was 16 years old that I was introduced to apologetics, and it was almost completely by accident. It didn't have anything to do with any church service, or any youth group, or any church camp. And I started to wonder after that, uh, you know, those of us who know about apologetics and how important it is and how formative it can be, especially for younger Christians, I was immediately asking the question, how have I not heard about this until this point? And the only conclusion I could come up with was either the churches we had attended were willfully neglecting it, which would be the worst case scenario. I don't think that's the case, however. The other option is that they simply viewed apologetics as a peripheral or optional discipline. So they just saw it as something that, well, you can do that. We let the young, testosterone-laden teenagers go down that route. And, uh, you know, we have more pressing matters to attend to. That was the only conclusion I could come to, because after I discovered it, I started asking my youth pastors and and the pastors of the church, why don't we talk about this? And they knew about it. And they were like, oh yeah, maybe we should. (laughs) Maybe we should bring it up at the youth groups. 
things like that. So that will be my focus for our sermon today, is answering the question of is apologetics merely a, an optional mandate, or is it something that we are all called to do? That is the question. And the passage that apologetics is born out of is, of course, 1 Peter chapter 3, particularly verse 15, but we are going to read verse 8 through 17 for a better context. So Peter says this at verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now the context of the first letter of Peter, so first Peter, if we read if we were to read the first verse, he's writing to five churches in Asia Minor. And this is rather unique to the epistles or the letters in, in the New Testament, that it is to such a broad audience, to several churches. It, by contrast, we have a letter like Timothy where Paul is writing to an individual. Well, here, Peter is actually writing to five churches. So hundreds, if not thousands of Christians that he is writing to. And the second most important question is, what exactly is our hope? In verse 15, it says that we are to always be prepared to make a defense for a reason for the hope that is in us. So what is that hope? And actually, Peter gives us the answer to that in verse 3 of the first chapter. Right off the bat, he provides what exactly our hope is. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he begins with this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The resurrection of Christ, therefore, is the central post of our hope as Christians. It gives us our assurance 
and confidence for eternal life, for new life. It is the very thing that gives us that peace, that hope. Which is exactly what our scripture reading was this morning. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul essentially makes the same statement. I'll read a portion of that again. It says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So what Paul is saying there and what Peter is saying here in in, uh, his letter is that on the contrary to that, Christ has been raised, and therefore our hope is eternal, unfading, and incorruptible, kept for us in heaven. So in a nutshell, that's what apologetics is defending. Apologetics is defending the resurrection of Christ, and it is the reason for our hope. Now to go a little further and to understand exactly how Peter is telling his church how to do this. We need to look at a little more of the overall context of this letter. In the first three chapters, when you read them, you kind of get the sense that Peter's kind of laying out just a basic moral standard. And it might be easy to conclude that he's just giving the church, here's how you avoid suffering. Here's how you avoid being persecuted. But Actually, when you read through the list, the conclusion that he comes to is that you will not avoid suffering if you do these things. For example, he tells them to put away the former ways, your former ways of life, and no longer live according to your former passions and desires. He commands them to love one another and be devoted to God's word, to put away malice, put away deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander. He tells the church to keep their conduct among the the Gentiles honorable, to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether that's the emperor or his governors. And then he goes on to give commands to servants, wives, and husbands, and how they are to treat, in the case of servants, their masters and wives and husbands, how they are to conduct themselves to their spouses, particularly if their spouse is an unbeliever. So you could draw the conclusion from this that he's just telling the church, this is how you live peaceably. This is how you avoid suffering. But actually what he's saying is that you want to avoid suffering for the wrong reasons. So we want to avoid suffering for doing evil. And this takes a little bit of an understanding of the history of the church at that point. So in the first century... Peter is writing to a group of Christians who is predominantly Jewish. They come from the Jewish tradition. And as we've been looking at in the series on Mark, uh, Mike and I have both uh, mentioned several times how the disciples have in mind a different type of kingdom than Christ has in mind. And if you study history, you find out that there were, uh, I think, uh, maybe a dozen many revolts. That is, there, were, there would be groups of Jews who would get together and they would actually create a revolt, a disturbance in a Roman city or province. 
and try to take over a garrison or they would kill some Roman guards or something like that. The point is, the Jews at that time believed that they were supposed to take over the world, which is exactly what we've seen the disciples thinking. Right? They're traveling on the road and they're discussing among themselves who's going to be the greatest. Well, in their minds, they were thinking, all right, who's going to be the ruler? Who's going to be the governor? Those kind of things. So Peter is still addressing this in the church. And this is what he means by, it is better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. He doesn't want the new Christian church to fall into the same way of thinking that, all right, the way we proclaim the gospel is to go out and overthrow the Romans. Let's go do some evil for the sake of Christ. No. Peter is encouraging them, that is not how we operate any longer. And secondly, we are to remain steadfast in our suffering for doing good. So we want to, he's encouraging them to avoid suffering for the wrong reasons, but to encouraging them to remain faithful while suffering for Christ or suffering for doing good. And this is a remarkable point. We have to remember who is writing this. Well, this is Peter, the very man who denied Christ in the face of suffering. So here's a man who is writing to a church, telling them that you will face accusations. You will face suffering for your association and unity with Christ. And you need to stand firm on the hope of the resurrection and not to fall away as he once did. Peter knows all too well the pressure of being united with Christ. So he's encouraging them that while we stand united with Christ, this is how we are to give an answer for our hope. Not only what we hope for, but the reason we conduct ourselves in a certain way. So this leads us to the central passage of today. Verse 15. So it begins with a qualification. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So Peter is telling us to do two things. First, we are to set apart Christ first as Lord, which means that he is supreme. He is the commander of our lives. And we dare not take lightly the work that he has accomplished. So with all respect and reverence and seriousness, we ought to honor Christ, not only with our words, but by our actions. And secondly, we are to set him apart as holy. And Christ's holiness is derived from his obedience and faithfulness to the proclamation of the word of God, both in word and deed. And no matter what circumstance Christ faced, he was faithful in doing this. So this is what it means to set Christ in our hearts as both Lord and holy. That he is supreme and that we listen to him and not simply the world. Moving on, the central passage, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, there are three words that uh, deserve being looked at here. And the first one of is, of course, defense. 
Now, defense is where we get the word apologetics from. In Greek, it's apologia. We've probably all heard that term. I'm, a li- I'm preaching to the choir a little bit here. Apologia means to make a formal defense. It was actually a legal term uh, that could be used and it was sometimes used in actual Roman courts that uh, a defendant would get up, give up, get up, and give an apology, give a defense. So to give an apology or to perform apologetics does not mean we're saying we're sorry. It does not mean that we're remorseful for what we believe. In fact, I've said this before, that when you catch your child doing something wrong and you say, say you're sorry or apologize, and they start giving you excuses, they start giving you reasons why they did something, actually they're, they're giving you an apology. They're giving you reasons why they did it. That's not, of course, what we mean. What we mean is express your remorsefulness for what you did. So we should really say, say that you're sorry. Don't apologize. But this is, the, this is the issue with America and how we treat the English language and the words that we've been uh, inherited. So apology is to make a formal defense. However, the next phrase indicates exactly how we're making that defense. It says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone. Well, anyone is essentially everyone. And that, that then goes beyond that formal sense of the courtroom. So now, instead of being limited to those uh, serious apologetic encounters, those ones between the two college professors that we often think, that's, that's what apologetics is. Well, that is apologetics, but that's not the only thing that apologetics is. Not everyone that's going to ask you questions is a college professor is someone who's really thought about these things. We ought to be able to give a defense to anyone, not just the highest level. And lastly, as we've mentioned already, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. A reason for the hope that is in you. And this, of course, means that the resurrection is the reason for our hope. So our hope is eternal life, unity and fellowship with the triune God for eternity. And the resurrection is the very thing that gives us that assurance. It gives us that hope. We could imagine if Christ had gone to the cross, so he'd gone through the passion, uh, was nailed to the cross, and, sa- and says, it is finished. Right? And, and the veil tears, and they take him down, and they put him in the tomb, and he stays there. If Christ had stayed in the tomb, would we really know that the atonement was effective? Would we really know that his sacrifice was accepted by God? Well, the answer to that is, yeah, how, how would we know? If, what happened to his body? We, he's still in the grave. He never rose. Imagine if the New Testament just stopped there. So this is the point that Peter is giving his church, telling the church. And this is the point that I want to uh, clarify to you, that apologetics is not simply answering every single objection anyone can make against the church. We're not giving a defense to anyone for any reason 
of anything that we believe. We're giving a defense for the reason for our hope, which is the resurrection. And finally, he adds another condition, or finishes with another condition. He says, yet do this with gentleness and respect. Now this actually took a little bit of time on my part to kind of parse out what the Greek words were doing here, because sometimes we translate this to, to mean that, okay, gentleness and respect towards the questioner. So the person who's asking the questions or objecting to your beliefs, we need to treat them with gentleness and respect. Where actually, the term gentleness is directed towards the person who's questioning you. However, the term respect, which is actually rendered more accurately fear or reverence, that is connected to God. So we are to perform it with gentleness towards the questioner out of fear and reverence, respect for our Lord. So that draws a very clear distinction between, okay, we, we, we should be gentle and nice to the questioner and we should respect their views. Not necessarily. We are to be gentle with the questioner, but do so with fear and reverence towards God. And there's actually a very practical reason for this. Even secular uh, sociologists and, and sort of political scientists will tell you the same thing, that persecution fuels conviction. So there's a very practical reason why Peter's telling the church to be gentle with how they interact with non-Christians. And that is, when you persecute your opponent, you actually solidify their beliefs. You solidify their convictions. So when we answer peaceably, when we answer with gentleness, it takes the wind out of their sails, so to speak. And we learn this elsewhere in Scripture. A gentle answer turns away wrath. When you bless those who persecute you, you heap burning coals on their heads. And when they persecute you for doing good deeds, they will be ashamed of themselves. Who persecutes anyone for doing good? And lastly, and most importantly, and I think this is the most remarkable point here, is that when we perform apologetics, when we give a defense of the resurrection, but with gentleness and reverence for God, gentleness towards the questioner, reverence for God, we are actually imitating Christ's passion. This is exactly how the Lord went to the cross. He went with gentleness. Right, scripture says he opened not his mouth. He didn't fight. He didn't rail against those who were doing this and saying, I told you so. You're going to regret this. He didn't do that thing. He went with gentleness. And we have to remember that this was the same God that Scripture says he could have called 12 legions of angels. He's not weak. So we're, this is what Peter is saying, is that we are not to be weak in the face of answering these questions. We're, the picture that I could think of is, we're like the mother lion who's carrying the cub by the nap of the neck. Now the lion is a killing machine, so to speak. So that mother lion is not acting at its full power, but the power is there, the strength is there. And she treats her cub with gentleness so as to accomplish her task. 
That's precisely what Christ did. He set aside, or rather he, he chose not to use the rightful authority and power that he had in going to the cross. And why did he do that? Why did he do it that way? Well, in the garden he prays, not my will, but yours. So there, out of reverence and respect and love for God, he obeys the Father. So this is the summary of how we are to, to do apologetics. However, that's not the main question that I want to answer today. I think for the most part, everyone here has a pretty good understanding of what apologetics is. The Reformed Church does a much better job at that than most denominations. I will say that. However, the question that we want to answer is, now that we know what apologetics is, who is called to apologetics? Is it truly, as I mentioned in in the beginning, is it truly something that only a few people are called to? Right? If you know who Vody Bakum is, he calls them the he says that you know we believe that apologetics is only for the special forces Christian. Right? That's the analogy he uses. That it's only for those really, really energetic, intense guys. Is that really all it's limited to? So for this sermon I I developed a set of terminology that I asked Mike, I said, is there, is, are these terms out there and I just don't know them? And so I, and he's like, no, I've never really heard of that concept before. So Dean, perhaps afterwards, if I'm saying something that's already been uh, given, then I'll, I'll happily de- defer to whoever came up with it first. But um, the concept that I want to talk about and to answer this question regards imperatives. So do we know what imperatives are in Scripture? Those are commands. So the, the word imperative is a grammatical term for a command given by someone in Scripture, Christ or, or one of the apostles. So the question is then, are there universal imperatives and are there limited imperatives? So universal imperatives versus limited imperatives. Now, we know that there are universal commands in Scripture. The most famous of which is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were given to all of Israel. So all of Israel was given the command to follow these Ten Commands, these Ten Laws. So that's a, the, probably the most well-known universal imperative. And there are limited imperatives. And actually, if we were to go through and read chapter 2 in the beginning of chapter 3 of First Peter, we see that he addresses three distinct categories or groups within the church. He addresses servants, wives, and then husbands. And by virtue of addressing those individual categories, the commands that he gives, the imperatives that he gives those groups, are limited to those groups. Obviously, Wives are not called to the same set of commands that husbands are. Free people are not called to the commands that servants are. So we can see that there are both universal commands, universal imperatives, and limited imperatives in Scripture. So the question remains, is apologetics a limited or universal command? A limited or universal imperative? Well, the beginning of the passage that we read, or that I read, Chapter 3, verse 8. 
begins with this. It says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, in this case, all of you are the five churches that Peter is writing to. All of you. And I think it is significant that this passage is found not only in this context, that he goes from addressing particular categories, he goes from addressing limited categories, to now switching, saying all of you, and that is the context in which this command to be able to give a defense for the hope, for the reason for the hope that is in us, is found. Five churches. A large group of Christians. If that doesn't convince you that it is in fact a universal imperative and not merely a limited imperative, here's another piece of evidence. We could turn again to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 27 through 31. Now here, Paul is addressing the unity of the church, or rather the body of Christ and the many members of it, the many offices that are in the body of Christ. And he's exhorting the church not to place one higher than the other. He says this, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Then he goes on and asks a set of questions. Now, the answer to these questions is implied no. In other words, the offices that he's about to list are limited. So not everyone is called to these things. He says, are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The answer to all those questions is no. Not everyone possesses all of those gifts. Therefore, they are limited commands. They are limited categories. And so the imperatives or the commands that apply to an apostle or a prophet or a teacher are unique to that particular group. Now, there might be commands that overlap, right? But if there are specific commands given to an apostle that aren't given to other offices, then those commands are unique. They are limited to the office of prophet. Now, what office or what concept is conspicuously absent from the list that Paul gives here? The concept of apologetics, the concept of giving a defense for the faith, giving a defense for the resurrection, is completely absent from Paul's message here. And I think that's for a very particular reason. Here he's giving a list of limited commands, limited offices. But the reason why there's no office of apologist is because it's a universally held position. It's a universal imperative. So we are all given the command to be prepared to make a defense for the reason for the hope that is in us. So sorry, none of you are off the hook. According, according to Peter, none of you are off the hook to perform, uh, to perform apologetics. Now to give you, not just, all right, we're done, 
see you later. Good luck. Uh, to give you a little bit of encouragement and uh, to help you along with the idea that apologetics is not simply, it's like, oh, great, now, now I've got to go learn Greek and I've got to go learn philosophy and all these types of things. Um, as I said before, apologetics is not answering every single objection that they can levy against anything that we believe. Peter is using a very particular point here. The fact is that the resurrection can be defended. We have ample evidence to defend it. And secondly, most apologetic opportunities that we face or that we're, in, we're encountered with don't sound like those highfalutin, high uh, academic encounters. Most apologetic opportunities are actually centered around very mundane and day-to-day activities. And this is a very remarkable thing that is included in chapter 3. Chapter 3 begins in verse 1 with Peter's uh, commands to wives to how they are to conduct themselves with their husbands, particularly if their husbands are unbelievers. And he says to them, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, that is, they are not Christians, they may be won without word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure behavior. That is the immediate context just before he gives us the apologetic mandate. And the interesting thing is, is that the word respect, which is given towards God, is also the same word that can be used for the respect that a wife gives to her husband. So what I believe Paul is implying here is that not only is apologetics for the courtroom, but apologetics can actually be performed by a wife, by her conduct alone. And that's a remarkable turn that gives us a broader and a full spectrum of what apologetics is, of what defending our faith is. That it's not just simply answering, all right, how do you know God exists? Define the ontological argument for God's existence. How do you know there's moral truths? There's absolute moral truths. Those are apologetic encounters. But so is, how come you never speak evil against your husband? How come you never uh, slander your boss or talk bad about, complain about how hard work is? How come you never curse at work? These are all apologetic opportunities. Here are a few others. So for the wives, when you're with your friends or talking to your friend, whether they're a believer or unbeliever, and they ask you, hey, do you want to go out? Or, or maybe you, you like this, I don't know, purse that I have. Why don't you buy one? And the, and you, and the wife says, well, actually, I need to check with my husband first if I can do that. I need to make sure that he's okay with spending the money or I need to make sure that we're, we're free that day or whatnot. And the, the friend might scoff at you and be like, you have to ask your husband for permission? 
Now, we could roll our eyes and be like, oh, no, I don't have to. No, no, that's not what I meant. Or we could say something to the effect of, yes, ultimately it is his decision. And Scripture commands me to honor my husband and to respect my husband. And this is a way that I do it. Now, the person will probably be like, I wasn't expecting that answer. Right? Why do you do that? Because Christ has authority. Because Christ is risen, his word has authority. Therefore, I follow the imperatives that he gives me. Because Christ is risen, the commands that he gives me are bearing upon me. And I, I, I dare not just cast them aside. Or another example, one that Julie and I have both experienced several times. Most parents have. You're in the check stand. And some clerk or someone makes the comment about, man, that is crazy. How many kids do you have? Ten, right? The Lilias go to Whole Foods. They have ten children. The clerks look at them like it's insane. Now, Molly could roll her eyes and gesture in an agreeing manner. Yeah, it is. I haven't had a day off in ever, right? (laughs) She could respond that way. The mother could respond that way. We, We all are tempted to respond that way. Or we could say something to the effect of, what work? Hard work? What hard work? These are the greatest blessing from God that I can have. Now, when the clerk again looks at you like, that wasn't what I was expecting to hear, how can you say that? What do you mean? What do you mean they're the greatest blessing you have? You can say, Scripture tells us that children are a blessing from God. And that's true because Christ is risen. So you can see how the mundane encounters we have in life could or would eventually lead lead to the empty tomb. And this is the final thought that I want to give us. Not all apologetic encounters will lead to a discussion of the risen Lord. Not every apologetic encounter will get there. But the idea is, and what makes apologetics actually very simple once we get this, is that they would lead there. So in the check stand, out in the world, when you're pumping gas, when you're you know just living life, especially today, our attention span is not that long. Most people aren't going to continue the conversation to that point. But that would be the goal. So that's something that makes apologetics very easy. When we have it in our mind that what I am ultimately doing here as a Christian is representing Christ, the resurrection is our hope. And after all, that's why we're here. That's why we're here on Sunday morning. That's why we raise our children a certain way. That's why we conduct ourselves a certain way. That's why we love our spouse, our friends. All of our action, the whole life of the Christian is centered around the hope that the resurrection gives us. And exactly what Paul said, without that, without the hope of the resurrection... We're just wasting our time. And that is the mandate that we are all given. So all apologetic encounters, whether from the highest to the lowest, would lead to the empty tomb. Now in closing, I think it's very remarkable that as our centerpiece, our main piece of evidence and proof, God gives us 
the greatest contradiction the world has ever seen. When all seemed lost, victory was gained. And this is a remarkable statement that what we are defending is unlike anything that has ever been seen in any other religion. It is totally contrary to how the world would see things. It was contrary to how the disciples wanted things to go. So we have an utterly unique and, and uh, amazing thing that we are defending, and that is the resurrection. So the resurrection was and remains the greatest divine contradiction the world has ever seen. It is what J.R.R. Tolkien called the great catastrophe. The great catastrophe, or the turning from bad to good. At the point when all seemed lost, the Messiah was dead on the, Christ, on, on the cross. The happy event occurs, and he is risen. And from torture to crucifixion, this seemingly horrible defeat, new life is gained and eternal hope is found. So saints, here's our charge to go into the world, this broken and desperate world, and defend the resurrection. Proclaim the the risen Lord with our words and deeds until one day we enter into our eternal inheritance. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for all of your blessings. Again, thank you for your word. Thank you for this church. Please work in us. Give us the desire and the conviction and the steadfastness to study your word, to grow with each other, to encourage one another, to confess our sins to one another. And in doing so, may we be a light to the world and see many, many more come to see and know the Son. We pray this in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.